Hey, Stephanie, what's the giveaway this week? So this week, we are partnering with Beta to give away the Dolby Dimension headphones. What are they? Did you try them on? How epic are they? Yeah, I already used them. They're, they're incredible. <laughs> Don't try and steal them from me. They're mine now. I was just trying to set you up, but they're awesome. They're yeah, synced with couple, my phone, so... We have a couple of pairs that we're testing, and they're uh, the best headphones I've ever used. And I've had uh, you know noise-canceling headphones yep. in the past and a whole collection of different things, AirPods. And uh, these headphones are the best. Yeah. They're awesome. They're super comfy, and I really love the Life Mix feature where you can toggle on and off the sound environment. So you can be listening to your music at full blast, full noise cancellation, you're just in your own environment, and then you can actually turn down your music and start absorbing the outside environment sound as well. So yeah. if Grayson's crying, if Chad's trying to get a hold of me, if I need to hear something, doorbell ring, you can turn it down slightly so you can hear both, but it sounds great and, and super fun. All you have to do to enable that is just tap twice on the headphones and instantly you can hear everything that's going on around you. So yep. that's one of many awesome features. There's probably 12 other features or something like that. And we are giving away a brand new set of these headphones. Two. We are giving away two, two? sets of these I can't headphones. believe it. Not one, but two. So go to our giveaway. The link is in the show notes and try to win them. Yeah. Thanks to Beta and thanks to Dolby for helping support Mission Daily and providing our listeners with awesome contests and giveaways so we can give back to you. So if you want to enter for a chance to win, go to the link in the show notes and you can also get more entries for referring guests and friends and family. So check that out and enter to win now. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. everyone. Today we have Christine Mosley, founder and CEO of Full Harvest, the first B2B marketplace for imperfect and surplus produce. Did you know that 40% of consumable food in the U.S. is wasted every year? Christine has made it her life's goal to create better and more sustainable uses for our discarded food by creating an online marketplace for farmers to connect surplus product with distributors. In this episode, Christine and Chad sit down to discuss America's massive food waste problem and how Food Harvest is working to fix it. They also talk about how Christine showed up in San Francisco with barely more than the clothes on her back and managed to turn her dream to make the world a better place into a reality. Stay tuned to hear more from Christine from Full Harvest. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today's guest is Christine. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you're calling in from San Francisco, right? Yes. Where, what part of the city are you all based in? We are in Union Square, right downtown. Very cool. What made you pick that location? Or is it, did you not, not select it? Not first choice? It's a really tough real estate market, but I feel like we hit the jackpot because um, it's a couple blocks from BART. We have a lot of employees that live in the East Bay um, and I didn't even mean for this to happen, but I can actually walk to work, which is amazing. And oh, nice. it's just a beautiful office space. So very excited to have found something that helped everybody um, in some way. <laughs> I love that. And um, when you're meeting people or talking with people about your job and about the business, how do you present it? And if somebody's really genuinely interested and they ask, what do you do? What type of business are you building? Uh, how do you answer that? Sure. So high level, I say that we're solving the massive food waste problem with technology, specifically at the farm level as the first B2B marketplace for ugly and surplus produce. And how I got into it is I spent 15 years within the logistics industries and the food industries. 
and saw a lot of waste and inefficiency. And in my last role, helping scale one of the first green juice companies in the country, Organic Avenue, based in New York. I, I loved what they were doing in terms of healthy food and awareness, but I was frustrated that they were selling $13 green juices. And it wasn't affordable by a lot of people, and it was because they were paying top dollar for perfect-looking produce to then just immediately process it and wanted to figure out how to make healthy food more affordable and accessible and find some way along the supply chain to um, innovate, to do so. And literally moved out to San Francisco over four years ago with a suitcase to find opportunities because I saw that there was so much opportunity but not enough entrepreneurs working on innovating in the food system and found food waste statistics that had just come out that were shockingly large in terms of 40% food waste and being the third largest contributor to climate change. But the thing that stuck out to me was that there were tens of billions of pounds of produce every year that was going to waste every year at the farm level just because it wasn't perfectly shaped for grocery stores and couldn't understand why that product wasn't going into the green juices that I had just been helping produce. And I found out it was a lack of incentive because of a lack of technology connecting mm. growers directly to those food and beverage companies so that they could press a few buttons and sell that product uh, to new channels. So that was the problem I was solving. And that's how Full Harvest came about. I love it. And when you're explaining that and somebody wants to go deeper on the problem, how do you describe this problem? Because the problem of food waste and uh, inefficiencies in the food marketplace, it's not a small one, right? It's, it's maybe one of the largest problems in the world. How big is the problem and how do you explain it to folks? So it's so large that there's actually stats coming out, uh, specifically at the farm level, that first they thought it was about 20 billion pounds of produce that was wasted every year, which is about 20% of production. In a few weeks, they're coming out with stats from three-year studies, both on the east and west coast of the country, that it could be possibly double that. So almost 40% of everything we grow does not even leave the farm just because it's not perfectly shaped or excess. Wow. So when we already think that food waste is the third largest contributor to climate change with existing data, it actually could be even larger um, based on new data coming out. So this is an urgent problem, but there's huge opportunities for solutions if we focus on it and treat it you know, in a scalable, urgent way. And so the reason why this has happened is that I explain is that consumers over the last few decades have been, and fortunately, especially in the United States, in a world of abundance where we've had plenty of options and have become wealthier. And so they've gotten pickier and pickier. At the same time, you have the retailer markets, the Walmarts and Costco's and Safeways of the world getting bigger and bigger and more consolidate, consolidated buying power. And so they have trickled down that demand from consumers down to these growers. And these growers who are desperately fighting for a small piece of a small pie and you know, majority of them on the verge of bankruptcy really rely on that business with these big retailers. And so their focus is doing whatever it takes to have the most beautiful looking produce at the best cost and as fast as possible. So with that being their priority, they don't have time to sit around over the phone offline, calling around trying to move product at a significant discount that's excess within 24 hours. It's just not efficient. The, the metaphor I give is before Airbnb existed, I'm sure you wouldn't have spent your extra time calling around, renting out your extra room to your friends. And that marketplace uh, simply connecting buyers and sellers unlocked multi-billion dollar excess revenue and inventory opportunity, almost exact parallel to the ag industry. As I just said, they, they don't have time to spend calling around offline, but sure. it's 
you just connect them with technology so that they can post and have access, then it unlocks what could be up to a $20 billion uncaptured revenue source right now for growers that are mostly on the verge of bankruptcy. So it's a huge opportunity for them. And how do you think about educating or spreading awareness of this? Because this is something that I would imagine a lot of growers out there don't know that there are new alternatives, that they don't know about your work. So how are you going about reaching out or uh, basically explaining the message and what you do to them? Yeah, so we really are trying to be a thought leader in the space. I've been doing a lot of speaking at some of the largest produce conferences and also on the food and beverage side, the buyers that we um, sell our produce into. Uh, we've gotten some great press in terms of, you know, food waste has become a big topic within the press and trying to be first and foremost, getting the message out there as much as we can. I think, you know, we're working on some co-branding opportunities with some large food and beverage companies to actually bring even more awareness through their um, marketing strength. And really, it's just been, you know, across the, the, the gamut of marketing, speaking, uh, being a thought leader in the space as much as we possibly can to get the word out there. And what do you, what would you say are the top three problems facing growers or uh, the, like, so your primary customers, what are their three biggest problems or pain points that they have right now? It's kind of a joke right now, but if you ask a grower that they would say labor, labor, and labor. It is such a big problem right now um, because of what's going on at the border and the pay that is being paid to these laborers currently. Um, And so, you know, there's a huge strain on the system because, you know, robotics have not yet become in mass production. Um, So I think we're kind of in this awkward time period before that happens where people are moving fast and furiously to figure out creative solutions. And so what's great about what we do is that because we help growers increase yield by up to 30%, we're not only a tech company, but we actually innovate with them in the field to help capture more and create specifications around product that they previously left. So that actually gives them more opportunity to pay laborers and incentivize them while justifying the cost because it's incremental revenue. Mm-hmm. So it's a great opportunity for growers to help with some of that. But in addition, I would say, because you did actually ask for three issues, um, <laughs> yeah. um, I would say that you know, some of the other things is incremental revenue. They, you know, 65% of growers in this country are on the verge of bankruptcy, yet they're leaving possibly up to 40% on the ground. Wow. At the same time, the organic demand for produce is twice as large as the supply because it takes three years to transition land, yet they're leading up, leaving up to 40% on the ground. So we're really excited about the opportunity to immediately unlock that extra organic supply versus them having to grow 40% more over three years. So uh, I would say that, and then, you know, really just trying to be more sustainable is something that they know they want to do, but it's been a challenge to make it easy on them. You know, they're getting pressure from certain uh, companies in order to be more sustainable and they want to be, um, but they haven't had easy solutions to do so. So that is also a pain point that we solve. Is there a role for like Walmart or companies like that to be more proactive in working with their growers or creating maybe more of a sustainable business structure for how they interact with them? Uh, Because it just seems like kind of unconscionable that these folks are, you know, so many of them are so close to bankruptcy and they're struggling with all these problems. And meanwhile, some of these large companies, like they, they have the runway, they could invest there. Why are they not doing that? Should they? Absolutely. There's a documentary food chain where I won't name names, but there's sure, a sure. grocery store where 
Growers went on a hunger strike just to get paid a penny more per bucket. Wow. Um, and, and the grocery chain was not willing to, um, you know, bend on, on increasing that salary. So, you know, I, I think there are definitely, everyone's not like that. There's a lot of companies doing good out there. I think they're starting to, I think, you know, for, for better, or for worse, whether it's the market dictating it and demanding it, people are starting to change. I think one of the issues is, is that even, for example, Walmart tried to start an imperfect produce line, but one of the issues is two things, is you need consistent demand and you need consistent supply. And our thesis is that you can only do that by using technology because mm-hmm. ugly and surplus produce is so disparate. And so you have to have tech to still do the aggregation in an easy way. Otherwise it's all over the phone trying to find that consistent supply year round. And so, you know, for, for example, a- applesauce should be 100% ugly apples, but it's not. It's only a portion of ugly apples just because offline it's very inefficient to try mm-hmm. to source that. So our th- thesis is that you absolutely need tech in order to solve this, and no one has done this yet. And so Walmart's ugly apple program, from what I understand, did not work because consumer demand was fickle. So therefore, the, the supply, you know, wasn't, it wasn't easy for them to lock up consistent supply for that and or source it in a consistent way. And so we really see an opportunity as we scale to help large retailers with our technology be able to solve for that so that we can, you know, as consumer demand grows for imperfect produce to also help cater to that side of the of the industry. Um, right now though we're heavily focused on food and beverage, consumer packaged goods that every week or food service companies or processors that every week have uh, consistent demand for product so that it incentivizes the grower in a consistent way as well to innovate with us or to sell to us. And I, I think a follow-up question too would just be, how are you thinking about shaping consumer demand for less than optimal like produce or produce that doesn't uh, look like we think that it should look? Because it seems pretty weird that just because of how something looks like we can't there's just a surplus that nobody wants. It's, it seems like a, a cultural quirk that is going to eventually have to be solved, right? I mean, this is a pretty irrational thing that's going on. Absolutely. It, it has to happen. We have to in order to have enough food for the growing population and demand for produce. So we view ourselves as B2B, but we really are growing into a B2B2C in a way that you know we're starting to do these co-branding partnerships that will drive consumer pull and awareness through mm-hmm. the brands itself where it will help bring awareness to the issue and then hopefully you know have consumers demand for products that have more sustainable supply chains um, and we really want to be that gold standard for that most sustainable produce supply chain out there so that's how we how we think about it through the b2b angle uh, there's obviously a lot that consumers can do on an individual level as well you know, I'm happy to dig into that if, if you'd like, but um, yeah. 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 If there's any, uh, any ways that consumers can go about maybe helping solve this problem right now, uh, I think it would be really cool to just extend a way that people could solve this out to everybody. So one misconception in the world is that people believe that, oh, if you throw produce or food in the trash, it's going to compost anyway. So you don't need to compost. One of my favorite documentaries that came out was Anthony Bourdain's last documentary he did called Wasted, the story of food waste. And he was actually very adamant about this, that the number one way that consumers can 
make an impact is simply by composting. And it's because food has such an impact on the environment because it gives off methane, which is 30 times um, stronger than carbon emissions. And when it's mixed in with other products, uh, especially things like plastics, it can actually become more toxic and it really slows down the process to where watermelon can go from taking a week to decompose to 20 years. Oh, wow. So, And then once it's releasing into the atmosphere, it's not being captured or reutilized in terms of things like biofuels that could actually be repurposed. It's just going into the environment as methane. And so if you compost, it one, keeps it clean with other food products. It two, helps it decompose really fast in a normal cycle. And three, contains it so that it actually can be repurposed. So big misconception in, in, in the world that needs to be explained. So yeah. Very cool. So you've mentioned this is the second documentary. Are there any others in the space that you feel are uh, really important? Or yeah, would those, the two you mentioned, would those be your like go-to recommendations for anyone that's interested in the space and learning more? Yeah. So there's other, another one called Just Eat It. It's another food waste documentary. So I'd say that one and then Anthony Bourdain's Wasted Documentary are two of the most powerful and recent and accurate stories of food waste right now. Cool. And um, when we talk more about your story and your journey building the business, you mentioned you came out to San Francisco with basically a suitcase and and little else. What was your story like building the company? And uh, when you were first headed out to San Francisco, what was your thought process like there? And uh, what happened when you landed? Well, it's definitely a journey. (laughs) Are you here a lot? Yeah. Um, So... At the time, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's actually crazy um, when I think about it. But came out here with a suitcase with only about you know twenty five thousand dollars in the bank, and had actually figured out a way to live off of that for two and a half years in San Francisco. Um, and very impressive. I had four roommates in my thirties. I you know ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, as cliche as it sounds. I bootstrapped. I definitely, you know, went for a year and a half in the wrong direction where I was research. Well, I was researching at first. It was a little less than a year and a half. It was, you know, about six months of research, figuring out the opportunity. And then I spent about eight months trying to actually start a food and beverage company utilizing Imperfect Produce. But I almost went broke trying to do that because what I found is that there actually was no one that could consistently supply ugly and surplus produce. Wow. So I, I think one of the biggest things I would have done differently is as soon as I realized that have pivoted sooner, um, just because I spent eight months kind of going in the wrong direction, just constantly trying to find others, you know, anybody that could be a supplier. So I know for a fact that no one is doing this because I tried myself and literally got my first angel check the month I didn't know how I was going to pay rent the next month. So, um, you know, it all works out like it's supposed to, because then once I pivoted to what Full Harvest is today, you know, we launched within four months and, you know, the rest is history and it's been growing ever since. And I realized, you know, even though I've been an entrepreneur throughout my life, those eight months of going the wrong direction were extremely painful uh, just because nothing was working. And I was like, oh, well, this is just entrepreneurship. And now when I realized I had product market fit, it's like, no, (laughs) you know, there's times when it's that painful just because it's the wrong idea and there's no product market fit. Um, sure. and, and when it's right, it feels right. You know, you know, it's right. It's just other issues, you know, like hiring or raising money that are, you know, painful sometimes, but not necessarily 
uh, it shouldn't be that difficult if you really are, you know, solving the right onto something. Yeah, for sure. And so you mentioned that you've been an entrepreneur for your your whole life. What were some early forays into entrepreneurship, or are there any stories you can share about how you got started? Yeah, sure. So, daughter of two entrepreneurs myself, my mom was a pioneer within financial investment world. Has a company thirty years later. My dad has his own law practice, and so I was always helping them when at a young age. You know, during the summers, helping out around their businesses. Always loved the thought of building a business and and knew from a young age that I wanted to do something to help the world in a big way, which sounds crazy, but I've, I felt like I've always kind of known that. Um, I told my mom, I think when I was 13, she wanted me to take over her business. And I said, I can't because I feel like I'm supposed to work on a really big problem and save the world. And I said, I, I know that sounds crazy. Does everybody think that? You know, but <laughs> Um, somehow I knew. And so that was always kind of my, my calling or my drive was trying to find what that um, business was. And then here we are and I found it. And so maybe I did know some, some way, shape or form. But I think when I was 17, I started a, I've been a pianist my whole life and I started a music education nonprofit in college. And then it turned from a student organization to 17 years later. Now it's a national organization. And that was really my first entree into using uh, my passion for solving a problem and helping the world through a nonprofit. But that I always said for 10 years afterwards that that was the favorite, my favorite thing I've ever done. And I know that I'm an entrepreneur because that was just something that I was so, that I loved and that I was so energized by. And so I knew that I needed then to find a for-profit idea that would be, you know, my next big thing for the rest of my life. And then that's how I got into Full Harvest. So I've always been, I feel deep down an entrepreneur at heart. So, yeah. And how would you, you know, do you credit your parents or who, who do you get advice from basically? Like, is there a mentor? Is there, is it your investors? Do you, a lot of entrepreneurs go to different people for different things. How do you think about your professional and then personal board of advisors? I think, to be honest, I, I, one of the things that I wish I'd done sooner is spent more time doing that early on to really think through who are, you know, sort of my brain trust and who do I want to put around the table and, you know, that where it's mutually beneficial or where they, you know, feel invested and really want to help. You know, it took me a while and I think it, it would have helped to have that, you know, as soon as possible. So that's some advice that I give to entrepreneurs um, that I speak to. But um, my mom is definitely a huge role model. She's definitely been there th- with me through thick and thin, you know, with experience that she's learned through her experience. I also have a, f- a handful of friends that are entrepreneurs that are further along from business school or that I've met in San Francisco that um, have been hugely valuable and would not <laughs> probably be where I am without their support and guidance. And then started to have a coach and joining some entrepreneur organizations to, to further that. Um, Very cool. That support, yeah. And um, how did you think about, you know, selecting your coach? Because I think there are a lot of uh, stigmas around asking for help or just getting a coach in general. So was it just an extended interview process? Did you get a referral from a friend who had also used that coach? What was your process like for that? Yeah, I had gone in the past through interviews and I had one that was really not helpful. Um, So I took a break for a little bit. I think you get what you pay for. I think at the time I was, I found somebody that was very affordable, um, but not very experienced. 
And then I recently in January got introduced through a mutual friend to somebody that has been phenomenal and really gets it and has done this with a lot of entrepreneurs and has helped me immediately improve on, you know, certain things around management and leadership that's been really impactful. So it was through a warm referral. And what's your advice for other uh, B2B entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about they have a B2B business idea, they want to get started? Do you have any advice for them or any uh, words of caution? Or Yeah, I think the number one thing is just one foot in front of the other as fast as possible and go for it. You're going to hit walls, you're going to pivot, you're going to change, but you just have to get going um, and just manage your expectations that it's never going to be a linear path. I literally, you know, everybody's from an outside perspective has told me, oh, it seems like you scaled so fast or it seems like, you know, everything's happening. So it's, it's going so well. It always seems that way from an outside perspective, but I don't think they remembered that year and a half that I was kind of under the radar that, you know, I was going in the wrong direction or, you know, struggling and trying to figure it out. And so just know that it takes time. So the sooner you get going, the better. Um, and just talk to a lot of people. I think I probably talked to, I don't know, 300 people while I was early days researching. Wow and watch documentaries and went to conferences and just trying to learn as much as I could. And that's what helped me to come up with the idea was putting the pieces together from everything I was seeing. As you're putting those pieces together, do you feel like you're de-risking the business? Are you feeling you know, much more confident in the business idea as you went through more and more data? Or was there ever a case where you felt like you were overwhelmed by all the data and all the research? What was that process like? Well, I guess how I'll answer it is that Early on, you know, I give the example that I felt like the movie The Big Short. I don't know if you've seen the movie. I have, yeah, I'm really familiar with Michael Lewis's book. One of my favorite movies and that scene where they go to the conference and they start piecing things together that this disaster is about ready to happen. You know, I would say that hundreds of people was over a, a couple years, but at the beginning, I just started getting very common themes across all the people I was talking to where it was just a glaring problem Mm -hmm. and realizing that I was onto something that was huge and going to blow up in our faces. I didn't know if in a few months or a few years, but I was willing to bet every dollar I had and my life's work on it. And sure enough, here we are. And, you know, had no idea at the time that food waste was the number three contributor to climate change, but I had a feeling because I saw how big the waste was at at these farms I was going to. And so I just felt like between seeing all these things that just didn't add up and didn't make sense and just following my gut, I, I knew that this was what I had to work on and that if I didn't do it, I didn't know who was going to um, and that it had to happen. So, And I think, too, it would be really fun to get an idea of what does your vision for the future look like if you're successful? So if you're successful in five years or 10 years or even just moderately successful? Like what's a conservative vision of a future where you and the company win? What's that look like? My dream is, you know, our vision that we say is a world where there's 0% food waste and 100% full harvests, where everything that's grown towards consumption is used towards consumption. So really, we want food and beverage companies to utilize ugly and surplus produce to the fullest extent possible. And where the, you know, our food system is 100% efficient and sustainable, 
online traceable, you know, where everything can be just done in a much more efficient, data-driven, environmentally friendly way. So I, I think there's such a huge opportunity for it. I think it's possible. I think all the stars are aligning right now for that to be the case. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that we're going to be able to do as we marry what we're doing with even some of the other innovation happening in other technology industries. So it's, I think it's really exciting times. Agreed. And uh, what is, is there a convergence of other technologies that you're watching? So you mentioned other industries and other trends. Are, are there any technologies that you're watching or keeping a close eye on? Because once they reach a certain point, you'll be able to integrate them. Anything you can share there? Definitely the logistics technology industries. There's a lot happening. It's really exciting. I think there's a lot of potential there to, to partner um, things around blockchain and food safety. You know, the food chain is one of the best use cases for utilizing traceability and blockchain to help with food safety and knowing where things come from. And then I think that there's a lot happening on the field with innovation, with hardware and software that can do a lot with, with our marketplace and what we're building. So yeah, a lot to come. Cool. And um, so final question, what is the best advice that you've ever received as an entrepreneur? Maybe it's from your first angel or uh, from another successful entrepreneur. Um, what's the best advice? So I have mentor and one of them is an angel investor, the founders of Rent the Runway. And they you know, are now valued at a billion dollars uh, as a company. So they've obviously been very successful. And they gave me some amazing advice around hiring and their lessons there. And I think you know, most times you think that you just need one set of values where it's just your company values but really you need two sets of values. One is for hiring and firing as terms of internal values and another set for brand values that you hmm. portray externally. And it's not for all companies, but I've found it very successful where we have internal values that we hire and fire against and it's helped to scale the culture. It's helped to keep consistency where Everybody can be very diverse. We have an extremely diverse team, but they all have the same values in terms of um, how to execute and what's important in the day-to-day -day and what to focus on and just their personalities in some way, shape, or form. And so I think that that's a way that you can scale a culture. And I think it's been, you know, really helpful to have learned that early on, which it took, it's, they told me that it took them years to learn that the hard way. And the more that you can share with other entrepreneurs, big learnings, I think it helps other entrepreneurs be a lot more successful faster. So, yeah. Excellent advice. I'll be going back and re-listening to that. Really good stuff. Christine, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.